Good evening, everybody. Welcome to week six of Forensic Psychology. So obviously, like all the athletes out there, this week we have to represent Tiger Woods. Get well, buddy. But uh, no, thank you so much for tuning in. So this week's content is all about lie detection. Now, what lie detection is, it's become this almost obsession and or addiction in forensic psychology and this this area that of all areas of forensic psychology from the from the interrogation work to the profiling work to whatever work it is lie detection is the number one most studied thing in forensic psychology and it's not for the reasons that you think it is so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the media personification of lie to me. Okay, remember, we're still in that movie moments phase of the course. So we're going to look at what the, the lay assumptions about lie detection are. We're then going to unpack each of them, right? So if you say that we can verbally detect lies, why is that? If you say that we can spot it with lie detectors and physiology, why is that? And then what do we know about actual scientific studies of lie detection? I'm going to test you a couple of times, see how good you are at it see if you can spot liars. And then I'm gonna show you how kind of, some of the psychology around the way in which it's done. And then I'm gonna really talk to you, just at the last little bit of this class, about what it is that makes lie detection as a field of study so appealing to forensic psychology researchers and why it is the most studied thing that we do. So I hope you enjoy, welcome to the intro, and we're gonna go jump straight into a clip from one of my favorite TV shows. I'll see you soon. Thousands behind him come down the hill. And you have to think, this whole process, I mean, it has been a winding journey of a process. It's exciting. It's not like the Open Championship when they let the gallery converge on the, the 72nd hole. That's okay. That's okay. I don't have much faith in words myself. Now, statistically speaking, average person tells three lies per 10 minutes of conversation. And granted, it's just regular people. We haven't studied the people who are planning to firebomb a black church. <laughs> Could skew differently. We don't have time for this scientist to talk to the guy. We went at him for four hours and got nothing. Now, the FBI knows you want mass casualties. Right now, ATF is searching every inch of the two largest black churches in state. FBI got it wrong. Well, there's a shocker. Not one of those two churches. Maybe you want one of the smaller churches, one of the black suburbs. You know what you're talking about. Don't respond. What do you say ATF starts with Southbridge? Nah, I'm only kidding. We're gonna skip that one. We're gonna focus on Lawton. You feel good about it? That's it, Lawton. Gone after a church in Lawton. That accusation has no basis. What do you mean? You just told me. The ATF found a pipe bomb in the church basement in Lawton an hour later. DOD friend of mine right. said this guy's a total nut job. I already spent like three years in the African jungle with some primitive tribe studying their eyebrows. What's his reaction to my statement? Right now, ATF is searching every inch of the two largest black churches in the state. Now, what you just saw there was a brief expression of happiness on his face, which he was trying his best to conceal. It lasted for less than a fifth of a second as what we call a micro-expression. Now, look at his mouth. The suspect is secretly happy about the locations we are searching, which tells me we have the wrong locations. Now I tell him of our new plan and... That's what you're talking about. Classic one-sided shrug. Translation, I have absolutely no confidence in what I just said. The body contradicts the words. 
He's lying. Yeah. When you accuse a suspect and he acts surprised, is there a way to tell if it's real or if he's just trying to look innocent? Now, that's real surprise. Lasts for less than a second when it comes across the face. But if your suspect is surprised for more than a second, then he's faking it. He's lying. Now, I call out that his target is actually Lawton. And watch it again. Concealed scorn. One personal tip, you see this micro expression in your spouse's face, your marriage is coming to an end. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, don't these micro expressions vary depending on the person? Let's leave this up and we'll go to the Kato Kalen footage from the OJ trial. Mr. Kalen, you got a lot of money for your appearance on Current Affair, didn't you? Um, yeah. Scorn. Scorn. Huge scorn. <laughs> Shame, shame, and shame. Contempt, these expressions are universal. Emotion looks the same whether you're a suburban housewife or a suicide bomber. The truth is written on all our faces. Enjoyed that video there. So that's the intro scene to the, the I think it's the old maybe 2012 show now, Lie to Me, uh, starring a guy called Cal Lightman. Now, what's really interesting about Cal Lightman is him as a character is actually based off a guy called Paul Ekman, who's a very, very famous psychologist. And actually, in a few moments, I'm going to show you Paul Ekman's kind of um, his theory of lie detection and what kind of Cal's character is based on. But just from a general oversight of that scene, you already see a couple of the really interesting assumptions about lie detection that we kind of have to begin our lecture with, right? So the first assumption that we see in that scene, so what is he? He's interrogating this guy. Cal Lightman comes in to do the, the job of the interrogating, if you will. And he instantaneously is able to spot that the person is lying. And, and his view is that, you know, that, that it's the micro expressions that does it. He's, he's using a combination of verbal and non-verbal techniques. And from that, he basically is this kind of human lie detector that kind of pings off, you know, every minute or so when someone's did being deceptive to them. And that's the the portrayal of what we want lie detection to be, right? So, you know, at this, at this, at this ideal end, we want the holy grail answer of how do I know that someone is lying to me straight away? Now, what's so interesting about this is that there are so many ways that this this quest has gone. So you, you saw there, you've got the, the micro-expressions test, right? Um, and then I've seen, you know, I know people at the moment who are doing work on, um, on, on fMRI-based lie detection, right? So imagine that you, you go into a situation and I, I wire you up um, with, a, with, a, with a brain scanner, and I'm able to tell instantaneously from your brain scan whether or not you're telling me the truth and, and how these things, you know, and how these things go. Basically, a, a modern day or, a, or an amplified or improved upon polygraph, which we'll cover later in this class. But it's this, this holy grail that we all want is to instantly know with 100% certainty that someone is not telling us the truth. But it's it's so interesting when you unpack that because one of the things I often say to students in the, at, the, at the start of this lecture is, well, what constitutes a lie? And, and, and what you find is you can unpack that in a, in a realm of, of complicated ways that don't just narrowly define on this idea of complete fabrication. You know, this idea of truth as a, as a speakable entity is not unified, it's not binary, but also the psychological process of not telling the truth is not unified and not binary. Some lies require creation, right? I create a story, if you will, about something that I've done. That's a lie, right? That's a fabrication. Or I could omit, right? I could tell you everything I did and just not tell you the key bit where I murdered somebody. Or I could substitute. I could tell you, what did you do last week? I could tell you what I did last week. And instead of telling you what I did last week when I murdered someone, I will tell you what I did two weeks ago when I didn't murder someone. 
right? So again, there's three different ways of lying, and not all of them involve fabrication. But the but the the base assumption often is that we that a lie is a unified thing. It has a unified process, and therefore, if we can spot the indicators of this unified process, then we can spot the "Are you lying?" question, right? And so. Just thinking about it now, you know, there's behavioural, there's physiological, there's now neurological, you know, there's all these different ways that we go, there's, there's, there's facial, I'll show you in a moment, there's all these different ways of going to all try and answer the exact same question of how do I know when someone's lying to me? And I mean, you can imagine why that is so powerful. Um, if you want to look at, you know, Ekman's consultancy firm, you know, who hires him? You know, it's the CIA, it's security groups, it's, it's tech firms, it's all these people because we constantly want to know if somebody is lying to us. Um, so it's this really important and interesting psychological question. And again, it's something that we, we intuitively feel like we should be able to do. But what's so interesting about lie detection is that there's this really big, I think, drift um, between kind of, you know, lie detecting in the real world and kind of lie detection, I mean, almost as a, as a psychological entity that we can study. And today I'm going to show you, I'm going to juxtapose those two kind of things for you. Right, so let's just jump straight into it. One of the things I love to do, so I've actually got up um, my lectures from the last time I gave this class, and I, I use Top Hat, because what I can quickly do is I can show you some of the, the lay assumptions about lie detecting, which I, I'm going to assume would kind of you know, would, would be be relevant or be truthful, if you will, to the kind of the the way that we probably all think about it. So if you just looked at, I mean, I gave the class as a as a bog standard answer. You know, I gave the class this this simple question. You know, I'm a good liar. Do you agree with this statement? Yes or no? I'll give you a second. You know, what do you think the um, what do you think the 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 score on this was? Well, I'll give you a second. Okay. So if we look at it, let me just check if it comes behind me. Oh, I did that wrong. There we go. So you can see that roughly 37% of the class agreed that they were good liars. 27% of the class agreed, disagreed that they were good liars. They thought they weren't very good liars. And it's a really interesting question. So it's this idea that, that lying is a skill. And it's something that you can, you can tune. Or, or maybe not tune, maybe it's something that's innate. But there are people who are very good at it. And there are people who are very bad at it. And it's this kind of, uh, so it's, it's this interesting idea of well, we can't know then how to how to how to detect if someone's lying or not because we don't know if they're a very good liar. And this is almost like kind of that classic like psychopath model, right? Psychopaths are phenomenally good at lying. Well, I'm not entirely sure that's true, but it's, it's viewed as a skill. It's viewed as something that we we vary at our ability in, which I think is an interesting way of thinking of, of lying as a as a skill or something you can almost even practice. But let's look at the next question and get some more base assumptions. So this is another good one. I am good at when at spotting when someone is lying to me. So I'll give you a moment, like, do you, are you good? Are you good at spotting when someone's lying to you? Do you know when I'm lying to you? Interesting. Hey, no, but, but seriously, do you know when your friends are lying to you? Do you know when your parents are lying to you? Do you know it because there are certain things that you pick up on? Or do you know it as more of a gut feeling? It's an interesting idea. Do you, can we even spot or detect why we know someone is lying if they are lying? You know, what, what's the clue that gives that away to us? So the responses in my class, again, interesting. 64% said that they were good at spotting when someone's lying to me. Now, what I like to do when I do this one in person is I can tag that answer and then I quiz people later and I can show that the people who think they're good liars, I can test whether they are better or not at actually spotting when someone is lying. But it is, it's this, it's this, this view that you are good or know when someone is lying to you. Now there are two views of that. The first view of that is that you, you do know when someone's lying to you, possibly. The second is that you like to believe you know when someone's lying to you so that you believe that you're not being tricked when you think people are being honest. It's kind of a self-defense mechanism idea there. But either way, we, we think it's this kind of universal skill that we have. And, and you know, people, people like to believe that they're very good at it. So the last question I like to ask the students is, okay, well, let's look at this then. So what then to you 
are the best ways to spot if someone's lying? So is it verbal? Is it the way that they tell the story that they're telling? Is it the details? Is it the omissions? Is it the pauses? Is it the lack of clarity? Is it the fact that the story doesn't quite come out naturally? Is it, is it, is it something that doesn't sound too rehearsed? Is it something verbally, right, that you're seeing or you're hearing almost that's, that's helping you know when someone is lying to you? Or is it behavioural? Is it, is, it, is it ticks? Is it pauses? Is it, is it looks to the left? Is it tapping of the knees? Is it rubbing of the hands? Is it sweat? Is it what? Like, is it a behavioural thing that shows you that someone is lying? More of their shuffling and the way that they're looking, right? So, so what do you think? You know, when you think about trying to tell if someone's lying to you, a friend, a, a colleague, a loved one, what do you think is the clues that would give it away to you? Right? Where where do we go with that as a theory? So, just the class, just as a. As, a, as an interesting place to start. So they kind of viewed that 12% said verbal, 31% said behavioral, and 58% said that both equally together. So most people think it's kind of a, a holistic perception of, um, of, of these things come together and help us spot when someone is lying, right? And, and this is interesting because there are basically two quite large chasms, if you will, in the research field as to what is the most, um, what is the best or most useful way of detecting whether someone's lying. And there are all these different ways. So if you think about the behavioral world, right, you can go all the way from, from micro expressions of behavior, um, all the way to a kind of, um, you know, a broader eye gazing. So that's a big one that people do. They do a lot of eye tracking research to try and look at where liars look and there's I mean there's these old wives tales of you know the liars what is it liars look up and to the left because the bottom right of the brain is the creative part and so looking up and left shows that you are engaging the creativity aspects of the brain which therefore mean that you're lying like that's there's an example of kind of of a behavioural stance on lying, right, which is quite interesting. The verbal one is, is more about, there's, there's a few different ways of doing it. Some people have gone with like machine learning. Some people have gone with tone. So you can always do a tonal analysis and you know, do they, maybe they don't hit the high notes when they're lying because they're not as confident. Maybe they pause too much, maybe they're too monotonous. And then also it's, you know, a lot of people have done, um, you know, use of details, use of adjectives, story structure, story narrative, all this kind of stuff. But there's almost these, two kind of quite clear camps, if you will, about what is the best way to spot that someone is lying. And, and when I give you the, the, the example in a moment, I'll give you the behavioral cues indicator just to show you how many different ways there are to kind of try and spot if someone was lying. So what I'm going to do now, I think the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, I think, the kind of the the Hollywood version, right? the Hollywood version of, of, of lie detection. And then I'm going to walk you through kind of, I guess, what some of the, the assumptions underpinning it are and where we go with that. And then we're going to do a kind of just a classic kind of, do you think someone's lying to you and why? Right? And then we'll, we'll go from that, we'll go into the science of kind of what the psychologists have done. Okay, everybody, we're going to try a quick experiment here. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through, we've got the one, two, three, four, We've got four different micro-expression training trials. Um, they used to do 10, but clearly they've uh, cut that down now. Um, and we're basically just going to go, and I'm just going to show you what a kind of a micro-expression looks like, and then we can kind of see, oh, there was one. Uh, we can kind of see just how hard we think they are. So let's go down and let's do number one together. Right, so do we click? Oh, what was that? I'm going to have another look. I, I mean, I, I see some teeth. Um, it's not enjoyment. Fear? You gonna tell me if I'm right or not? Okay, try the other one. Let's try the next one. Oh, I missed it. That was a good start. I've already missed it. Oh, okay. Eyebrows went up. Did the eyebrows go up? I Surprise. Okay, third one. Third one. Oh, 
Okay, I, ju I just see teeth. It's like I only see the teeth. Uh, the, uh, the mouth is open. What would mouth open do? I mean, in real life, you don't get three attempts. Um, enjoyment? And then... Oh, that was that was easier. Okay. Oh, so the mouth coming out of the, the contempt. That's contempt. Okay, enter your email address to get your score, Neil. So they can get me to sign up for the bloody mailing list. Okay, when it comes through, I'm going to show you my score, and we'll uh, we'll see how well. Oh my god. Okay, so wrong. So that was disgust. That's disgust. No way. Fear. Debate. I, I I was leaning on enjoyment. Enjoyment and surprise are similar. Content. One out of four. So you won't catch me doing micro expressions anytime soon. So I'll, I, if anyone wants the link to this and to have a go themselves, let me know. Um, I think it's one of the hardest things on the planet. So what I showed you there basically was Paul Ekman's kind of training program about how he tries to train the detection of micro-expressions in different parts of the audience. And even Paul Ekman comes out and says, kind of, you know, only a, only a very, very small percentage of people can ever be true, true micro-expression detectors, you know, like your Cal Lightmans or whatever they're called, right? But most people can, can get to a point where they're slightly better at detecting micro-expressions. And he has gone, and, and the, the number of agencies that that do the micro-expression work is insane. But it's built on this, the psychological theory behind it is the idea that the, when you feel something, when you feel an emotion, you are unable, you, 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 you engage in an act of, of suppression. So you, you feel your real emotion, and then your body realizes that you have to hide your real emotion. So then it kicks in a suppression effect, which, which stops you from reacting. And in that moment, you can see the original intent. So that's literally what a micro-expression is, basically. It's this gap between reaction and control. And in that moment, you can, you can spot kind of a, spot someone's true intent, and therefore you can tell if they're lying, right? So, so the, the classic one would be, someone tells you that, I don't know, Janie and John are getting married, and, and you actually fucking hate Janie. Um, and your first response, you so your gut response is, oof, Janie. Uh, but obviously, you know, you want to be hashtag Team Janie and John, or Jayon, as I'm sure they're calling themselves these days. Ha everyone loves a good couple's name. Um, and so you, you, you try and cover it. So you'd be like, so instead of going, ugh, you'd go, ah, gravitastic, right? It's a terrible example of a micro-expression. But that's what the micro-expression training is. Now, I have a few points on it. Firstly, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping you saw on the example how unbelievably hard they are to detect. I put, I'm not a natural, I find it phenomenally hard. Um, but the other thing as well is the amount of immense focus it takes you to spot a micro-expression, even if they exist, to spot a micro-expression. Can you imagine trying to do that while actually just trying to have a conversation with someone? So you can imagine that you're, you're having this conversation with someone and they're talking to you, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not actually looking them in their eyes. You are so intently focusing on their face to the point you're not looking at them or listening to them. You're just staring at their face, desperately trying to stop a to spot a micro expression, right? So this is why the micro expression one's interesting because it it alone is a concept. It may even be valid and true, but it is it has almost no pragmatic utility. Because if you are trying to spot a micro-expression, you basically can't really listen to anything else or be an act, like do anything else because you're focusing so intently. But it's this, it's, it's popularized because it's viewed as this kind of teachable, trainable science. And I, I personally don't think that that's actually the case. So let's go a step wider now. So let, let's try a slightly broader um, lie detection task. So what I'm gonna show you is, and so this is an old police interview with a, with a lady called Hannah Smith, and I've kind of changed her name. But 
Basically, Hannah Smith's husband has gone missing. And about a day later, Hannah Smith comes in and she basically gives her side of the story. Right? So, so what happened and, and why she was the one who called the police, why she called the police. Uh, and so her kind of narrative around looking for her husband. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. I'm going to give you no clues. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you some of Hannah Smith's interview. And I want you to ask me if you, oh sorry, you to answer if you think she is lying, i.e. she is involved in the disappearance of her husband, or if she's telling the truth. And by that I mean that she is absolutely not involved in the disappearance of her husband and we have absolutely no idea where he's gone. And on top of that, just I think so you can, you can see it and I guess kind of have insight into it, maybe even it'll help. In the link below, I'll put a link to the um, lie detection checklist. Um, just in case you, you want that to kind of, I guess, help you on your journey or at least try and help you make an assessment. So watch this clip of Hannah Smith and you just try and detect or tell, tell me if you think that she's lying. And I mean, in the comments below or wherever you want, I'd like to know why you, why you think what you think. If you think she's lying, why? If you think she's telling the truth, why? And afterwards, we'll come back and we'll actually kind of have a look at the... Um, have a look at the, the I guess, the, the different scientific approaches uh, that have been used to kind of to kind of put this together, and we'll 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 work our way through that. So enjoy this interview. I'm I'm, I'm excited to see what you think. Thanks. <sighs> okay. Um, I parked up on the street. It was busy, so I parked down the end of the road. I walked up to the house. I knocked on the door. No answer. I took my keys out of my bag, unlocked the door. The main lock was unlocked. I could tell because the key wouldn't turn when I tried to turn it to the left. I walked in. Simon's coat wasn't on the peg. I couldn't see his shoes on the shoe rack. Um, I shouted out for him. I walked straight into the kitchen. He usually sits in there to have a cup of tea and read his paper. He wasn't there. I touched the kettle. It was cold. Um, I looked quickly into the living room. Nothing. I walked upstairs to the bedroom, he wasn't there. I didn't search for him because it was pretty clear he wasn't there. And then I had a shower. Whilst I was in the shower, the phone rang. I think it was Eric, his boss. I didn't answer it. Then I came out and I was just exhausted. So I lay down on the bed and I fell asleep, but I didn't mean to. I woke up a couple of hours later and I was surprised to see no one in the bed next to me. And then I remembered where I was and what had happened. That's when Eric called again. I spoke to him. Then I called Simon's parents. And then I decided to come and see you. That enough? Yes. I speak with Eleanor at least once a day. Not that there's anything much to say. There's No, I'm okay. Fuck. Okay. So I hope you enjoy that. I'm interested to know what you think. So write in the comments if you think she was lying or not, and, and maybe why, and, and let's see what people kind of settle on. But let's look at the, the psychology, or at least the, I guess the science behind how you can spot, or how we think you can spot, if somebody is lying. So the first approach, so there's two basic approaches, right? The first is an anxiety-based approach. And the second is a cognitive approach. So the anxiety-based approach is basically the classic one that I'm sure you'll all know of. And if any of you have a kind of um, a, a future or a hope of being kind of in any of the agencies or anything like that, you know, this is something that you'll, you'll have to enjoy. Um, but basically, this is the kind of the polygraph method, right? So, so if any of you don't know what a polygraph is, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of I'll give a quick summation of that now. But basically, a polygraph test is, and you must have seen them all in, in, in a number of films or commercials or whatever it is. You know, they're not admissible, but there we go. But, you know, it's this idea that you, you hook someone up to basically what is a physiological measurement device. So they're measuring body stress reactivity. And they, they ask them a series of baseline questions. So you get this idea of kind of where you are generally. And then they ask them, you know, sensitive questions, right? And in theory, if someone is, is lying, the, the, the polygraph goes goes right up. Now, to be honest, the I think even a polygrapher would tell you that that's not quite the case. They'd kind of say that 
a massive spike is is usually more indicative of something that you want to probe further about. But but the very traditional idea is that you know yes 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 no oh hang on a minute you're lying you know it's this idea that basically the the fact that you know you are lying makes you sub subconsciously signals a reaction that is basically detectable if you are using a kind of a, a, a physiological measure. Now, to be honest, we almost have come back to the polygraph, but just we're now just calling it a different name. We're calling it a brain scan. And so there's a lot of work now on can you do remote um, lie detection using brain scanners? And I mean, I was, when I was with the army um, as a scientist, this was something that people around me were working on. Of like, we're going to go to Afghanistan. Oh, I shouldn't say that. We're gonna. One of the ideas was, you know, they were going to go to Afghanistan with this brain scanner kit, and so you can imagine the situation, right? They, 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 they capture someone, or you know, and they they use a brain scanner and they ask him a series of questions about what he knows, and you know, whatever his, they know he's lying based on, you know, like the the brain scan. The, another one I've heard is the. Is a, is a do you recognize this person? So, you know, if you, if you, if you imagine you, you captured a gang member, right, and you wanted to know who, who was and who wasn't in the gang or whatever it was, and you would show them different photos. Do you know them? 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 And at some point you may show them the photo of their gang leader or gang mentor, and they're obviously not going to want to not, not going to rat them out. So they're going to say, no, I don't know that person. Right? And so in theory, the idea is that if you're scanning their brain, the brain signal is different between a, no, I honestly don't know that person, yes, I do know that person, and no, I don't know that person, but the truth is, yes, I do know that person. Right, so in theory, the, the type of answer that they're giving, truth, lie, or I guess deception, sorry, uh, truthful knowing, truthful not knowing, or, or deceptive not knowing, each has a unique pattern, right, and you can therefore detect that pattern. And the polygraph is one way of doing it. The brain scanner is another way of doing it. But they're all but they're all basically doing the same thing, which which is from a standoff or basically a, a, a measurement standpoint. Can I measure the way that your body is, from a physiological standpoint, reacting, or from a neurological standpoint, I guess, working, in order to you know tell whether you're lying or not? Now, the problem with them, and this is why they both of those strategies get in a lot of trouble is a heightened reactivity and or heightened neurological activity could be an indicator of deception, but it could also be an indicator of several other things, right? There are so many different things. I mean, imagine the, imagine the, the, the interrogating someone version, right? So you, you hook them up to a lie detector. You're, oh, so here's a good one. Actually, I'll give you a good one. My, I know some, some students like yourself who have gone through and tried to get into the various agencies and as part of that they've had to have lie detectors. And I know one student who failed the lie detector. And the, the view was, it's not because they lied, it's because they were so stressed about the fact that they knew that if they messed up the lie detector, they would not get this dream job of theirs, that their physiological reactivity was off the wall anyway. And even the guy said to me, he said, I can't tell if you're lying, but I just can't tell anything. So technically you failed because we can't get a good reading out of you. Imagine the stress and imagine the strain. And then actually imagine all of that you know, in the real world. And this idea of having clean physiological signals and even clean neurological signals to then be able to detect a significant deviation, that's kind of the main problem with these, is they're so high fidelity that you have to have this like, perfectly clean and scrubbed environment and in the real world that just never is really the case and so when there is a, a spike you're always wondering well what is it really that kind of you know causes that spike you know one of the one of the examples I always give right it's imagine for a moment I have a phobia of teaching now you can come to your own assumptions uh, as to whether I have a phobia of teaching or not but but let's say that I do right and let's say that I am you know, talking to, let's say that there is a murder next door. And this, this example is already terrible. I can, I, can already, I can already sense how bad this example is. Um, and I am best friends with the murder victim. Um, and 
uh, they come to me and I'm, I'm in my lie detector test and they say to me, oh, you know, what were you doing when the victim was murdered? And I'll say, oh, actually I was in class. And just the mention, just the mention of class is probably going to be enough to make a small physiological reactivity out of it. Because I have such an ingrained class fear response that when I think about class, when I think about teaching class, I start to clam, I start to sweat, whatever it is, right? So there's gonna, there's gonna be a reaction there. It's nothing to do with what's going on, but I'm having my own internal interpretation of the question and the cueing that they've given me, right? And that's gonna send my polygraph score straight through the roof. So the thing to take from this, and we'll move on to the cognitive methods, which, which realistically is more of where the psychologists have come in, but the anxiety-based methods are, people are basically operating under the assumption that when you lie, your body, or in nowadays the modern view would be your brain, but your body or your brain give you away, right? And therefore, if you don't listen to the words and you don't look at the person and you just listen to their body and, their, and or their brain, their body or their brain will tell you that they're lying because it involves a, an alter, a heightened arousal or an, alter, or an alter, alternate process or more neurological firing or some area of the brain that wasn't alight before is now alight after. Now, it's all well and good and it sounds very good and it sells very good. But the problem is, if you actually know anything about those tests, is that those tests are so high fidelity anyway that they are very, very easy to set off. So let me give you an example. We actually just set up a, a neuro lab at UMass Lowell. Um, I partnered with a, a corporate client of mine, um, and we, we basically collaborated to put together a big EEG lab. So we can do brain research, we can do eye tracking research, all this kind of stuff. And I was talking to someone, he said, oh, just so you know, you, you have to black out the windows. And I was like, why? And they were like, oh, basically if any light gets in, it completely screws up the EEG. And I was like, oh, so you mean like it, you, it screws up and it's completely unusable? She's like, yeah, it's completely unusable. I'm like, oh, okay, great. And then we did another study with the army with EEG and 25 of our like 70 participants, we just had to throw their data out because something in the environment just completely screwed it up, right? That's how fragile these kind of things are. So the problem with them is that they may show a deviation of a reading, but there's no guarantee that that deviation from a reading comes from anything that would be constituted or, I guess, associated with, with, with detection. It could be an indicator, but it, it could be many, many other things. So that's why they're, they're very much amped up in the movie world and in the Hollywood world, but the, the real world has, has still kind of struggled a little bit with those ones. But let's look at the next one, right? So so this... This idea of the cognitive method. So when it comes to detection deception, what the cognitive method says is that basically there are, that the cognitive processes of lying are different to the cognitive processes of telling the truth. Now to give you an, to give you an example, and only if you're not a, only for the non-psychologist in the room. When you, when you create a memory, what you're actually doing is you are basically solidifying the, 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 the neural connections between a, a range or a number of different neural of different concepts of association in the brain. Right, so right now I'm making a memory, right? <laughs> We're making memories together, everyone. But no, I'm making a memory, right? And so this memory involves, I'm not, I'm not recording it. It's not, it's not recorded, it, it, it's constructs associated together, right? So I remember the walls, I remember my, my suit, I remember this laptop here, I remember the phone, and we're all encapsulated together. And it's one of the, in memory you find that people remember things best when they're in the same environment that they learned them. There's a really good um, study involving a scuba diver that learned some numbers underwater and then was asked to recall the numbers on land at some later point and got like 70% and then went back underwater and tried to recall them and he recalled them at like 90%. And so the environment helps you remember things, right? Conscious or unconscious. But, but memory is this idea of a, of a reconstruction, but this, this constellated kind of snapshot moment of the whole world. And so what the cognitive method basically says is putting together a memory isn't technically that difficult. 
right. But putting together a lie, it requires a different process because those associations aren't there and those links aren't there. And therefore, it's not the same process of construction as if it was a true memory. So they have to do something. Not only do they have to do something different cognitively, but they have to do something harder cognitively. Now, the, the view on this from a baseline standpoint is that you don't... If I'm just sat here and you ask me to lie, I can do it well, and I can do it in probably so well that you can't tell, right? And the reason is that, to be honest, this isn't a very stressful environment. So I've got enough brain space and enough brain resources left that even with the added cognitive load of, of, of having to lie, I still can get away with it and you can't tell, right? Because it takes a bit more work, but not so much more work that... I can't, I, I, that it's going to overload me. Now, so the cognitive argument is that if you then increase the cognitive load, so that there is a kind of a, you'll, you kind of have to already be doing something, then when I ask you to lie on top of that, then you're basically going to run out of cognitive space and you're going to start showing greater signs that you're lying, right? So that's kind of this, this cognitive idea is, Everything being equal, a lie takes less energy, sorry, a truth takes less energy than a lie, but not so much that you could really tell. If you make them work a bit harder, the lie still takes more energy than the truth. And because they're already working harder, it's now going to be way more obvious that they're lying. So there's a really good scene, and I don't know if I can find it, I will drop it in uh, right now. But I don't know if I can. But it is this, uh, is this scene... I've got a pen. I don't know if I've got a pen and I could do it. Um, it's this scene in The Mentalist where they're trying to work out if someone is lying. And so they tell their story, blah, 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 blah. Here's my story, here's my story. And they say, okay, really good. Hold the fine point of a pen and tell me again. And so they're doing this activity where they're holding on to the fine point of a pen, which doesn't take a lot, but it takes a bit. And then they're trying to tell the story. And because this is taking up so many cognitive resources, they don't have the resources left to actually be able to tell the lie. And so they drop the pen and then everyone in the TV show is like, oh my God, you were lying. Genius, I know. But that's this kind of this cognitive approach and it's based on this idea of the, the cognitive load. So look, there is a, a million, there are a million and one studies on kind of how people lie and whether or not those, those lies work. But there are, there are a few, I guess, more established ways that, to, tell if, to, to, to probe if someone is lying that are basically based on this kind of this concept of um, this concept of kind of how a memory is coded and kind of what that process of, of memory encoding looks like. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to try and set up an experiment and I'm going to come back and I'm going to do the experiment in which I test out these four methods and we'll see what you think. So give me a few seconds and we'll come back to that. Okay, good evening everybody. Okay, so normally I like to do these experiments with students in the classroom, but given we're virtual and there are no students in my house, um, I guess I'm just going to have to do it on myself. So me and this die, we're going to try and put it together. So I've designed a little study for us, right? I have got a question, right? When was the last time I lost my wallet? Now. I spent the last two to three minutes coming up with a truth and a lie. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll the die, and whether it's an odd, if it's an even number, I'm going to tell the truth. If it's an odd number, I'm going to lie. Right? So I'm going to get told that on the spot. After I've uh, after I've done my um, after I've done my uh, story, truth or lie, I'm going to ask myself um, two of the four different strategies that psychologists have put together to try and, I guess, increase the cognitive load of retelling a story. And they are reverse order, spatial detail, unexpected question, and um, the fourth one that I've mentioned in the lecture, that because it's 
God knows what time at night has completely slipped my mind. So I probably won't do that one. But I'm going to roll the die and basically whatever number it is, that's going to tell us the ones we're going to do. So, okay, two. So the first thing I'm going to ask myself is reverse order. So I'm going to tell you the story and then I'm going to have to immediately tell it to you backwards. Okay, and the next one, four. Unexpected question. So, unexpected question. Now it's going to be slightly tough to ask myself an unexpected question, but you'll get the gist anyway, okay? So here we go. Truth or lie, truth or lie, truth or lie, truth or lie. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, so here we go. When was the last time I lost my wallet? So, well, firstly, I actually have a joke with my wife that I've never lost my wallet. Um, uh, and I get, actually, this, this, this one uh, in some way will help with that. So I was in Utah in, uh, when was it? 18 months ago. Uh, I was out there actually weirdly with Lawrence Allison uh, and his wife and his son. And uh, one of the days is someone to go downhill mountain biking. I think it, yeah, it's downhill mountain biking on the mountains or on the ski, ski mountain. I was the only person dumb enough to want to do it. Seems like a big Utah activity. So we went up there, we went up on the mountain, we got our bikes, uh, we're riding around, we're doing a bunch of trails. Um, and at some point on the lift, he opened up his bag. I think we were taking cameras in or out or whatever we were doing. He opened up his bag and basically my wallet must have just fallen out. It must have been after lunch because I bought lunch. And so we're riding around, we're riding around, riding around. We get to the bottom and my wallet's just nowhere to be seen. So we ask him if anyone's handed in or this kind of stuff. No one has. We say, okay, never mind. So we go back. Uh, a couple of days later, I, you know, I, I fly back home. Interesting getting on a plane without a wallet, but there you go. Uh, I obviously made it. I'm here. And then about... Three to four months later, I got a Facebook message from a complete stranger, basically saying like, hey, I was hiking in Utah uh, and I found your wallet. Uh, what's your address and I'll mail it to you. I was like, all right, cool. So I gave him my address, mails the wallet back to me. Uh, there is a, a full on teeth mark missing in this wallet, but cash was there, cards were there, IDs were there. Fantastic. So. In theory, I'd never lost it. I just misplaced it for about four to five months. Okay, so there's my story. Was that truth or was that lie? Um, and then let's go. So uh, question one, reverse order. So I've got to say, got to say the whole thing in reverse. Um, so uh, four and a half months after I lost it, my wallet was returned with cash in it. Uh, flew from Utah back home. A couple of days before that was downhill mountain biking with Heath. Uh, after lunch, must have opened his bag at some point on one of the lifts and basically it fell out. We had lunch, that was great. We then, um, prior to that, we were just riding all around, doing the downhill mountain biking. We were in Utah for work. I was there with Lawrence. It was 18 months ago. There you go, that's reversed. Okay, unexpected question. Uh, what I have for lunch? Um, had a burger. Like, I'm pretty sure I had a burger. Uh, it was nice. I mean, I don't know what you say about an American burger. I mean, it was nice. It didn't change the world. Um, so there you go. Okay, so truth or lie? I'll give you a few seconds, but uh, and after that, let's jump back to the lecture and let's uh, learn a little bit more about why these tra why these tactics should work. So I hope you enjoyed that little test. I'm not. In, I haven't. Uh, when I when I'm recording this lecture, I haven't recorded the test yet, so I have no idea how it went. But what I wanted to show you there was basically the four strategies that have been designed by psychologists to try and help investigators unpack whether or not someone is lying or not. And you can actually find these in kind of the, the formal police literature. But basically they are, tell the story in reverse. And the reason is that if the story is true, the network associations are so strong that one, that basically it doesn't matter if you tell it forward or backwards, right? When you, when you think of a lie or you create a lie, you often rehearse it forwards, which means that you don't really rehearse it backwards. But when you think of a real memory, the connections between nodes and events in your mind are bi-directional because they occurred, they, they kind of all occurred, to, not all occurred together, but, but they're, because they're real, the connection is so strong. So an actual event reminds you of what happened before. Whereas when you tell a story forward and you create a lie, you kind of only rehearse it in one direction. The second is uh, the unexpected question, which is the idea of kind of, when you rehearse a story or a lie, you only think about kind of what you're likely to be asked. So if you're asked about something completely random, it makes it very, very difficult to then kind of think on the spot of what the answer to that might be is. The third is the spatial one. So that is the kind of um, 
When a real memory happens, you obviously you lived it in a 3D space. So you almost you remember the physical space as much as you remember the events and the moments themselves. So if you ask someone about the physical space, in theory you can kind of trip them up because spatial memory and um, spatial memory and um, and kind of the, the, the I guess the the, the the lived memory are one in, in our minds, whereas for a liar they've kind of more created a narrative memory. And finally the fourth one is kind of high stakes or not. So basically if you up the stakes, the theory is that it makes it much harder for someone to, to hide your hide I guess hide their 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 truth and their reactions. So that's what I love to do with students where before they I get students to tell these different stories, um, whether they're lying or not. Before they do that one I take them to one side and tell them that if they trick the class, I'll give them 25 bucks. Just to see them, just to see how it, so that's one of the ways we, we manipulate that. But to, to sum it up then, what the, what the cognitive approach to lie detection says is that when you have to lie, you basically have to increase your cognitive load because, so some of the things that they say, you know, you have to invent a story, you have to monitor the person listening to your story, with the idea being, you know, you want to see that they're believing you. You have to monitor your own story, your own ability. So you've got to monitor yourself to make sure you seem calm. You've got to monitor the other person to make sure you're, they're believing you. You've got to invent this new story. You've got to suppress yourself from accidentally telling the truth. And then you have to kind of, I guess, reaffirm to yourself why you're even lying in the first place. So all of these things are are added stresses and so basically the theory is that when you kind of try and get someone to do that and then you make the complex hard the process harder they're going to falter now these are just a couple base findings from the field just about kind of what the psychological science says and it basically says that overall we perform around charts so if you give 100 people a lie detector test i give i give there's 70 of you in this class Sorry, there's 70 of you in each class. There's 140 of you on this, right? In theory, of the 140 of you, when you looked at Hannah Smith's story, I would hazard that 60 to 70% of you would have said that she was telling the truth. And the reason... Actually, no. In the real world, if she told you that story, 60 to 70% of you would say that she's telling the truth. In that condition where I told you to try and tell if she was lying, 60 to 70% of you probably think she's lying. So it's this really counterintuitive finding that we are attuned to basically believe everybody is telling us the truth. However, if I tell you to look and see if someone is lying, the overarching tendency is to suddenly assume that they're lying and to over overview the fact that they're telling the truth. So if someone's talking to you, you assume they're telling the truth. If I tell you to to detect if someone's lying, you flip that and you are automatically more primed to tell them, that to, to assume that they are lying. So it's a really interesting flip there. Vry in 2000, A. Vry, if you ever see his name, is the biggest name in, um, the biggest name in, um, uh, in, in lie detection research. So he's at the University of Portsmouth in England and he's prolific on the lie detection research. So in 2012, he says it's kind of an over-reliance on behavioural cues, which is true. I, that like in terms of the, the meta-analyses and the different studies around what is the best way to detect if somebody is lying or not, the general finding is that the best way to detect is verbally. So actually what they say and the, the way in which they detail the story rather than looking at them as a person. Actually, there's a... Um, a paper here I just got up and I'll just flip it on the screen behind me. Oh, it doesn't... Oh, I've just managed to break it. Does it come up behind me? It does. Did I have to get rid of this? Let's just go here. So this is actually from uh, 2002. And uh, I'm really good at doing this. Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing, Neil. It's actually incredible that you can be this useless. There may be a hard cut in the video at this point.
Sorry about that. Tech was terrible. So, this is actually a paper from 2000, um, 2020, and basically it's by Vry, um, and it basically says, unraveling the misconception about deception and nervous behavior. So it's a really interesting meta-analysis that basically says that, you know, the assumption about lie detection is that lying makes you nervous. And it's that the nerves then lead to the leakage. So the nerves lead to the behavioral leakage, they lead to the verbal leakage and all this kind of stuff. And what Vry actually kind of says is actually it, it's not that true. They, they Lies don't make people particularly nervous. And if it does make them particularly nervous, you, you actually can't see that. So, so actually that's why the kind of the tendency now has been to look at either one, the verbal side of things, or two, the idea that lying is more cognitively demanding. So make the, make the retelling of the story more cognitively demanding so that for the liars, they have twice as much to do. And it's only when you make them do twice as much that you can possibly get to the point where you are able to detect it. But it's interesting because the, the very last finding on, uh, on that slide that um, you kind of see there is actually that overall, I'm just gonna move this one back over here. Okay, let's just get rid of this. Get rid of you. Okay, just move you over here. Oh, wow, it's way smoother. Right, overall, into, like, so, so this is what, what um, Bree says, that if liars do not sponta spontaneously display cues, which they don't, interview strategies must elicit them. So you have to interview them in a way that allows you to make them show you that they're lying. And that's what those techniques were that I mentioned earlier, right? That's what those four techniques are. They are ways of interviewing someone in order to, in order to make them show you that they are lying, which is a very, very different view to, I can stand here and passively detect that you're lying just by tuning into the correct cues when you're speaking, which is what the original kind of behavioral view is, it's what the verbal view is, and obviously it's what the anxiety view is. So the kind of the, the I guess the up-to-date psychology on this idea of, of, of lie detection and, and how it's done is to basically accept that lies are, lies are more complicated. We're not entirely sure how different they are, but in theory they are more complicated to tell. So if you make the, 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 the recall situation itself more complicated, then you have a much higher chance of them messing up, right? Let's think about it this way. Um, imagine you have two jugglers. I can just tell it's gonna be terrible. Imagine you have two jugglers. One is a very good juggler, one is a very bad juggler, right? The very good juggler can basically juggle without thinking about it. Easy peasy, easy peasy. The other juggler can juggle, right? But it, it, they're working twice as hard, right? To keep the track of all the balls in the air. Now, if I just sit them in the middle of my kitchen and I say, can you juggle? I can watch them juggle, right? And both of them can successfully juggle, right? Now, I know what, what, you, what you'd say is, obviously you'd be able to tell who's doing it easier and who's doing it harder. In juggling, yes. In lying, no, which is actually why juggling was a terrible analogy here. Now. Let's imagine, though, that I want to make this more difficult. If I put them on a skateboard, and that skateboard is moving, which juggler is going to fuck up first? It's obviously the juggler that was trying much harder to begin with, because he doesn't have the cognitive resources available to juggle and also skateboard. Whereas the person who can juggle with relative ease, relatively little cognitive, ease or, uh, cognitive resources, is probably able to juggle and skateboard at the same time. That's the kind of the, the modern day approach to lie detection, is lying is cognitively challenging. So if we're gonna elicit it in any way, the only way that we can do it is by making the situation of recall much tougher. Now, I'm actually gonna end on a, a slightly more, I think not philosophical note, but when it comes to the lie detection stuff, I think there's something really, really important to remember. And it's a kind of a, we've been studying lie detection now for about 30 years. And as I mentioned in the intro to this class, it is the number one most studied thing, almost in all of psychology, right? 
But we're basically at the point where we say, people aren't very good at spotting them. And to be honest, it's actually very hard to trip people up and just kind of get intuitive or quick, quick clips and quick hits as to, as to why someone is, um, why someone is, is, or if someone is lying or not, right? So this is relatively hard to do. But we still keep doing all of this research on verbal, non-verbal, all this kind of stuff. And we're still trying to almost sell this illusion that lie detection is something that you can basically kind of do, even if you try, right? And the reason for that is a really interesting thing, is in forensic psychology, it's very, very hard to get data, right? So you've got to go get crime scene data, you've got to work with the police, you've got to get terrorism data, whatever that looks like. It's very, very hard to do. Lie detection has found itself into this amazing, almost niche, if you will, that it is phenomenally easy to study using traditional psychological methods. So if you think about what psychological methods are, right? Psychological methods as in using undergraduate students, experimental paradigms, manipulating conditions in order to create experimental differences between groups, collecting high fidelity data, running complicated statistical analyses, and then, um, and then, uh, and then using that to write up a published paper. There are very few things in forensic psychology that lend itself to that. Lie detection, however, is perfect because you have two groups, liars and non-liars. You control everything that they do other than asking them to tell a lie or not tell a lie. You can use high fidelity measurement, uh, neuro, counting behaviors, physio, words, whatever it is, and then you can do your statistical analysis. So the experimental paradigm to study lie detection is really, really easy and really, really appealing. What you do is you get a bunch of students and you say, I want you to come into the lab and I want you to tell me what you did last night, lie or don't lie, and I'm gonna look at, and I'm gonna watch you do it or I'm gonna measure you do it or whatever it is, right? And that's so easy to do and it makes so much sense for a traditional psychologist that a lot of psychologists really like the paradigm of lie detection because it sets itself up so beautifully for experimental research, which is what psychologists are trained to do. So one of the reasons that lie detection is so well studied and so, I guess, so chaste, if you will, is because it sets itself up so nicely to be looked at in traditional psychological methods. And this is one of the problems with lie detection. I've, I've been speaking to, um, I speak to a bunch of uh, senior interviewers recently, and we were talking about lie detection. And one of them said to me, like, I don't give a fuck if they're lying. I just want them to speak to me. And it's like, in the real world, they often aren't always trying to catch them out in a lie or not, as in instantly saying, you're lying. For two reasons. One, if they're wrong, and you accuse someone of lying when they're wrong, you've completely ruined the rapport, which we'll, we'll talk about next week. And two, to be honest, the best way to tell if someone's lying is to get them to tell you to speak for a long, long time and at some point, they'll probably contradict themselves and you'll be able to pick up on it. So to be honest, most, most investigators don't use lie detection as a, as a cue-based concept. They do lie detection more as a misalignment of, inf of things that they've already said. And that's why you often have two interviewers. So the, the trick or cue-based idea in the world of lie detection in the real world isn't that appealing. But to a research to researchers, it's a really publishable, sounds awful, publishable, repeatable, and experimental thing to study, which is why we have so much lie detection research out there, which is kind of one of the reasons that it, it is what it is. So there's a couple of issues I just wanted to point out in general to sum up. Firstly, there's a, and this is what the, the reading's about, there's a thing called the motivation overriding effect, which is that when you tell people to spot lies, they suddenly stop seeing the truth, and naturally we see the truth. So people aren't any more accurate when they're trying to tell if someone's lying because they call people liars and are wrong much more often. Whereas when they're not trying, they call people truth tellers and are wrong as often. So they're, they're equally inaccurate, they've just flipped the error. 
Um, there's an issue of kind of unconscious versus conscious, so the gut feeling idea, we've never really tapped into what that gut feeling of lying feels like. There's this idea of it's, it's disastrous if someone calls you a liar and is wrong in the real world, and that's why investigative officers don't really do the, the you look left, I think you're lying model. And then the quality of the research is, is something I've, I've talked about, this idea that it is, it is heavily, heavily lab-based. Lies aren't binary, which I think from a psychological standpoint is, because everything I've told you about lies being cognitively more complex. Not if it's substitution or omission. That really isn't. I just tell you every omission. I tell you everything I was going to tell you anyway. I just drop out one detail. Substitution. I tell you the truth. But the truth was from the week before, the, the week before you asked. Psychologically, that's so much more complicated. But in the research on it, we simply say, fabricate a story, right? Um, we don't know how we detect lies cross-culturally, so that's a big problem. Um, and not everyone finds, finds lying cognitively challenging. So it's just basically, if I were to sum it all up, the idea of deception detection has been universally stripped down from a, from a, from a, from a public standpoint to something that is observable and spottable based on behavioural and verbal cues. The real truth is that it, the verbal is definitely, can be useful sometimes, the behavioural is, is not very useful. Like Very few studies seem to show consistently that behavioural indicators are accurate. Right? So the spotting of it is tough. But if we embrace the idea that, that creating a lie is cognitively more complex than telling the truth, then you can manipulate the way or the, the way in which you question someone in a way that is designed to make the process harder. And in doing so, you can therefore hopefully get them to show or give you more indicators. Again, it, it's not done in the same, it, it's a million miles from the Cal Lightman approach, right? The, the you're lying to me approach. I can tell you're lying to me. It's a million miles from the micro expression approach, right? It's a million miles from that. But what it is, is basically it is a, a cognitive method if you're going to do anything. But to be honest, the truth with real investigators and real interrogators is they don't care if people are lying that much. They just want them talking. And then if they talk and talk and talk long enough, eventually they'll be able to say, well, you said A, but you also said B, so clearly you're lying. And do it that way. And that's actually something that we're going to talk about on Thursday. In Thursday's lectures, we're going to look at this idea of rapport and how you get people to talk to you. So really, you can tell if they're lying that way, which is the best way. So thank you very much for the lecture. Enjoy the week. I look forward to seeing you on Thursday, everybody. Have a great day.